Welcome to Psychology Has It Backwards. This series will question the assumption that people are psychologically broken and need to be fixed. We will talk about how seeing people as innately healthy will change all of your interactions and outcomes. This is a true paradigm shift, and it simplifies the entire process of dealing with mental distress and allows for more profound and immediate changes. Aloha, and welcome to Psychology Has It Backwards. This is the podcast that we uh, are taking on mainstream thinking in psychology and trying to help people to see that one of the ways that, that one of the reasons that we don't get as much success in helping people is because we've been looking at things backwards. So I'm really grateful to be here today with my good friend and colleague and wonderful human being. (laughs) Judy Sedgman, and I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And today we thought we'd take on the DSM-5. There's a new one out, which is the DSM-5 something or other. with more diagnoses in it than were previously. And we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about how that particular way of thinking, it's now a huge book, has um, kind of taken over the field of psychiatry and psychology and created what we would call diagnoses. Now, diagnoses are ways of describing how people are experiencing life from a given state of mind and the way their thinking works with with consciousness to create whatever symptoms they might be having. But it's really designed to look at what's wrong with people and sometimes creates illnesses that are that are off like um, there's a new diagnosis I heard on the radio called uh, headline news disorder that people are getting anxious from looking at the headlines in the news. And that's, that, that's not yet in the DSM, I might add. But nonetheless, that's how these things kind of get started is that people start to see like, oh, there's a whole bunch of people that read the news and they get scared. And so let's call that an illness. Right, that's that becomes like a something to diagnose. So as we have gone through, like when I started off as a therapist, um, there the book was pretty small, and it was basically, you know, uh, did you have anxiety or did you have depression or did you have a mood disorder or or some other psychotic episodes um, like schizophrenia or bipolar. And then personality disorders. So we kind of divided up the group into people who have fearful, insecure thinking and create anxiety in lots of different ways and then act in lots of different ways as a result of those anxieties, those fears, those thoughts. Or you got depressed because you had a lot of negative thinking as a result sometimes of trauma in your life or bad things that happened to you or sometimes for no particular reason, but you just have a lot of negative, um, insecure thinking. And then people who have um, personality disorders are kind of people that don't interact with the rest of the world very well. So they tend to um, have trouble with a lot of their interpersonal relationships. Sometimes they can do well at business and other things, but not so well in 
interpersonal relationships. But, and then there's people that have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, which are um, ways that the, the mind creates several realities at the same time. I mean, that's very simplified, I understand. But if you put down like what's wrong with people, you can pretty much put it into one of those four categories. And it's interesting because all human beings fall into these categories no matter where they live. It's not like culturally based. It's not, that's just how human beings work. And instead of looking at how human beings work, what we've been looking at is what their thinking creates and the symptoms and what comes out of that. And that's really um, where the problem started because people started then to look at these diagnoses, not as just a way to uh, explain how people use thought in a way that's not healthy, but they started using it as, as, as things. And we developed diagnoses and diagnoses then became a thing to have, a thing to, to manage, a thing to provide medication for, a thing to do something with. But it's really not. And that's where the problem comes. And it's very confusing because when you look at this book, it's so complicated. It's like written for somebody who's like a got a PhD in medicine and, you know, like a, a, the, the ultra medical person. Um, and when people start to look at uh, what's wrong with them all the time, they just see more and more. And so as a result of that, the DSM is, has grown dramatically. But that's kind of what um, we wanted to kind of look at is that when we're looking at what's wrong, we get stuck in that. And, and everything that we do in the field now is about treating what's wrong with people. And, and yet we don't really, so some diagnoses people are told they can't recover from or they'll have it for the rest of their life for whatever reason. So it's, it's like they have an illness that goes beyond um, just describing symptoms that a person is experiencing in that particular moment. So that's kind of what's happened as a result of it. I had a client one time who wanted me to see her 13-year-old daughter because her daughter had been diagnosed with social anxiety disorder, and her psychiatrist had told the mother that social anxiety disorder was an incurable illness. And I said, well, I would say that a person who manifests social anxiety disorder is shy and a little bit afraid of other people. And your daughter's 13. And I think that's a fairly common thing with 13-year-old girls. They get insecure about their looks and they're starting to develop as women, but they're uncertain about themselves and it seems to me that telling her she's mentally ill is not going to make her feel better. <laughs> and the mother said, well, I know, but the psychiatrist wants to give her medication and I don't want to put my daughter on medication and I just don't know what to say. And I said, well, you could say cancel my next appointment, <laughs> which was kind of rude. But, <laughs> but, but honestly, you mean, you can't help sometimes but realize, and I'm not, I don't mean to make fun of or, or deride or diminish the experience people have when they misuse their thinking, it's very real. Because as we're always telling you, our thoughts become real when consciousness brings them to life, and that appears to be the reality we're living in. But the truth is that if you give it a name, and then you call it a disease, and then you say it's incurable, you're creating more insecurity. Because the person came in, it's like, if I go to the doctor 
and I get diagnosed with, let's say, uh, bronchitis, and the doctor says, well, you've got a different form of bronchitis, and it's never never going to be different. It's going to be, you'll have it your whole life, and you're always going to have to take this medicine, and you'll have these coughing spells, and you have to be very careful where you go and read the pollution index every day. Suddenly, my life has become a living hell, you know, and I have bronchitis and could recover, you know, but I'm not hearing that. And, and I, and honestly, the, the most depressing part to me about the DSM is it leaves people with the impression that this is a list of human flaws and that people who are flawed are broken somehow and they can be helped, but they can't be cured. And, and that is dooming society to mental illness. And it disturbs me personally, the number of young people that, that get these diagnoses very seriously from very serious professionals. And, and then they take them on, you know, and they get scared and they get uh, fearful about growing up and how am I going to live my life? And what am I going to do next? And, and are people going to think I'm strange? And, you know, all the questions that kids have about themselves anyway are exacerbated a thousand times when they get these big words attached to them that are like the scarlet letter emblazoned across their forehead. So, you know, my problem with the DSM as a person who used to teach the DSM uh, as a part of a course on uh, what was different about the work I do from the regular work in psychology is that it really is a, it is really uh, for, it was designed for professionals not to be shared with patients it was designed originally for professionals to help them sort out their way of thinking about different patients. They used to just have mood disorders and thought disorders. And, and then it got bigger and bigger and more and more refinements of categories and so on. But the first DSM that was published was only 106 pages long. And the thing is like 600 pages long now. Yes. And, you know, people haven't changed that much. You know, seriously, the human race is still the human race. Yeah. But we, but as we start looking for pathology, we find it. That's right. And, you know, you have to see if that's true about everything in life. If you look for what's wrong, you'll find something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you go to a restaurant and you look for something bad in the kitchen or in the food, you'll find it. If you go hoping to have a nice time, you won't notice it. And I, and I really think that this is the, the difficulty that, uh, has come about through access to the internet and sh- too much sharing and all of this and the, and the desire to, to create a, a professional uh, veneer over what is basically a, a helping profession. You know, psychology started out to be just a way to help people that are struggling to feel better. And um, so you know, I have a very deep concern about the, the amount of emphasis that's placed on the DSM, but also as a person that used to run a medical practice business, I'm very aware that if you don't have a diagnosis, you don't get paid. So, you know, the insurance companies count on the ICD-9, which is the International Disease Manual, and the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychology and Psychiatry, uh, to provide guidance for how much to pay people for various disorders and how long to treat them. Um, Go ahead. You know, um, there's two things that have happened with that. One is, is that 
the diagnosis, I mean, it, it's when you read up on diagnoses, you'd, if you read the book, you'd probably have 40 or 50 yourself. You know, you can read through them and, and they are really talking about things that happen to all of us at times, you know, things, symptoms that we all have. And the problem is, is that when you make that kind of normal human reaction to things be a diagnosis, it becomes a problem and a thing. So a couple of episodes ago, we talked about thing versus thought. And this is a really good example of that, is that as we thought about how insecurity manifests itself in, in human beings, because we didn't understand the principles behind how human beings function, we got focused on what people create and how it comes out in their lives. And the more we focused on that, it, we created these things called diagnoses. And it, and, but they're not things. They're just a moment in time. This is the way that you're thinking is creating a reality through you. And as you do that, it doesn't, it's not something that you have 24 seven. You know, like my husband has diabetes 24 seven. He doesn't go to sleep or, you know, when he's laughing at his diabetes doesn't go away. That's a chronic condition that he has. Anxiety is not a chronic condition because it's hit and miss. It's like, all of a sudden you're anxious about something. The next minute you're like struck by the beauty of a child. You know, the next minute you're uh, anxious about something again. It's thought to thought, moment to moment. It's not a thing. It's not a condition that you are stuck with. Now, that doesn't mean that if you you have that condition, if you've been living anxiety, you've been living with depression, that you've been doing that, that it's not real for you. And that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that we we're saying that we're not saying that people don't create a hellish existence innocently. But when we don't understand how thought works and we don't understand that we have innate health, we we're like floundering. We're we're like we're drowning in water trying to do anything we can to stay afloat, to be able to function because our thinking, or the way we're using our thinking is backwards. And so we're creating all of this uh, turmoil in ourselves, and we don't know it. And because the field is so focused on having this illness, like now when you train as a graduate student, you have to do a treatment plan that's based on the diagnosis, right? So that you are treating that so the insurance companies are happy that you're treating this illness, that really doesn't exist. It's just a description of symptoms. And the insurance company would be smarter if they would be focused on, on getting people to focus on the health and clients rather than on just treating the symptoms because it's a step too late. So in, in, it's like be, you know, it'd be like if somebody came in and was throwing up, then the physician was trying to give them better garbage cans to throw up in rather than <laughs> what's making them throw up. Right. And so that's kind of what we're doing. We're teaching people how to cope with their anxiety, how to cope with their depression. But that's all what they're generating. So if we help them to step back and see how to stop generating that, you don't have to manage those symptoms. And it's not forever. It's it's really surprising to me how 
I mean, it's thrilling, actually, but it's also surprising every time I see it, how quickly people turn around when they realize the nature of thought and, and the illusions that we can create and how real they look to us. And I mean, I've seen, uh, and people think this is strange, but I mean, people that common sense makes sense to people. And if you don't tell people there's something terribly wrong with them and it's going to take a really long time and we're going to have to go over all this stuff. And I don't know, a lot of people never really get rid of this, but you know, with the right medications, you can function all those thoughts go into people's mind and they start thinking about how am I going to adjust my life and everything. And I remember when I was doing veterans groups, I had a uh, veteran one time who had been in the mental health system since the Vietnam War. And this was like about five years ago that I was talking to this guy. So it's been a long time since the Vietnam War. And uh, he had had, he, he had them all written down on a sheet of paper because he had to tell his regular doctors about them. Every time they ask you, have you been diagnosed with a mental illness? You have to list them. He had 17 diagnoses over time, none of which anyone had ever told him he'd recovered from. So, you know, as, as he, as time went on, he, he, he was being treated by more than one psychiatrist and he had 17 diagnoses going, some of which conflicted, you know, like he'd look up the symptoms in the DSM and he'd say, well, I have you know, I have, yeah, I have this sometimes, but then this other set of symptoms, I don't, you know, I can't have the two things together, you know, and I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And I said, well, you know, my personal advice to you is don't think about it so much. Just don't spend a lot of time thinking about your diagnoses. Think about your life. And he said, well, I know, but I see, he said, honestly, my life is going from psychiatrist appointment to psychologist appointment to groups and, you know, treatments. And he said, I, I don't have a life, really. And I, and I really felt so sorry for him. I mean, I couldn't interfere with the VA and tell him, you know, he needed to keep his relationship with the VA and keep his VA benefits and keep his disability. And the, the whole system is kind of rigged towards pathology. But I said to him, you know, treat it lightly, you know, just bear in mind, sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. Sometimes you're having a good day and things look better and you're having a good moment and things look beautiful. And sometimes you don't see the beauty and, and it looks kind of gloomy. And that's just how our minds work. We're up and down. And I drew a little chart, you know, and showed them how, how different things were, you know, in, in the ups and downs. And he said, well, then why do they keep giving it names? And I said, well, that's a really good question. And I don't have the answer to it. But you, since you asked that question, you can ask yourself, if it doesn't make sense, do I have to spend a lot of time thinking about it? But, you know, I always felt terrible that I couldn't just tell him, uh, everything you're saying is true. You can't have all these things at one time. Every diagnosis was like a snapshot, a bad picture taken at a dinner party, you know. It's like every once in a while you get your picture taken and you think, God, I hope nobody sees that picture. <laughs> and, and, and there it is written down somewhere or somebody put it in their scrapbook and you go, oh, the thing's never going to go away. And I said, really, honestly, a snapshot, you don't go to a psychiatrist unless you're in, in a bad state, mm -hmm. in a bad state of mind. I've never known anybody to go to a psychiatrist and say, can you explain to me why I'm feeling so good? Right. You know? So you're obviously, you're bringing them your worst moment right. and then they, then they categorize it and memorialize it. 
and then it becomes you instead of like a moment in time when you really were bummed out and your thinking was a little bit skewed. Yeah. So when, when we work with people, we're, we're trying to explain to them how thought works, not what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. They're thinking it because it occurred to them. You know? <laughs> and, and when you're in a really low state of mind, some really weird stuff occurs to you. Yeah. That's really an important point because what we're, what we're doing is we're providing an antidote for the way they're thinking is creating that experience. Okay, so just like with any antidote, it, it has a degree of success. So the more, sometimes people have to do it longer. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes a long time actually to get over just thinking that you've got a diagnosis, that there's something wrong with you that can't be cured. So, you know, that's the beautiful thing about what we're talking about is that, you know, and I just really want to make clear is, is that when people are suffering, they're suffering, right? But when people are like trying to figure out what's wrong with them so they can feel better. That's what happens. We give them a diagnosis and then they get stuck right there. They don't, they can't see that there's the possibility for health because people don't teach people about what the antidote is. They just teach them how to manage the symptoms, how to, how to think differently, how to analyze their past to get some insight into intellectual insight into why they are the way they are, but why the way you are the way you are isn't going to make you feel happy. I promise you, because that's not what happiness doesn't come from the intellect. Happiness comes from that part of you that's before thought. And that's a very powerful thing. It is. You know, I'm, I'm working on a, um, another book and I've been uh, writing what I'm trying to do is write the, uh, the first visit for a variety of cases to illustrate certain points and cases that I've worked on in the past. And as I reflect on these, I, several times when I saw people that were just really interesting, I would make notes. I didn't keep client notes, but I would make notes like, a, you know, just that I would understand that nobody else would ever know who I was writing about. And, um, so I've kind of gone back through those. I've written some of them up before, but I just realized the number of people that were so surprised when I wouldn't talk to them about what was wrong with them. It just kept recurring the number of times people I would people would want to tell me their whole history of, of you know being in the mental health system, and I would say, "Well, can we not go into a lot of detail? I get the idea that you've had kind of a crappy life. You know, I get that." So let's just talk about where we are now and where we can go from here. And they were like, no, no, that, you know, you're a psychologist. You're supposed to tell me how this happened to me. And I, I always am always saying, like, no, it doesn't matter how it happened to you because it's not real. It's, it's something you thought of that plagues you now because you keep bringing it to mind. But if you're not thinking about it, it's not in your life, is it? And I've had people that were surprised to realize, yeah, there's sometimes when I'm not thinking about it and it doesn't bother me. Like that's a shock to them. And, 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 it, and it shouldn't be. It should be that's the moment you're looking for. You're going like, oh, yeah, I want more of those moments where I'm not focused on it and it doesn't bother me. And you, you want to be asking yourself, like, if that's possible, if I can just put something out of my mind and turn away from it, and think about the present moment or think about what I'm doing right now, 
um, you know, maybe that means that that's not really my whole life, that other thing. And, and people will, they will respond to those questions. Like, it's funny, I was writing a chapter this morning and I, and it involved a man who was elderly and crippled and with arthritis. And he had been this sort of a wild kid and a very powerful man, you know, he'd been in construction and he'd worked these big buildings and he was a, you know, just a really strong dude. And then he fell and he broke a lot of bones and he went on disability and then, you know, he got old and he retired and he was miserable. <laughs> and, and, and he could barely walk and he just sat home and watched TV all day after his wife died. And um, it's so funny because all I did was talk to him. I asked him a simple question. He mentioned, I, he said he was just completely miserable all the time. And I said, so you're telling me that never do you have even a few moments, you know, when you kind of lighten up and something amuses you or you feel a little bit better. He said, well, I do have this one guy that lives in, you know, lives near me and he comes by to visit me sometimes and he's hilarious. He's really funny. And he just doesn't take me seriously and he gets going and he, he tells all these stories and he said, you know, he's got a wooden leg and he was really injured in Vietnam. He's got a lot of problems, but he, he doesn't, uh, it doesn't bother him. It doesn't stop him, you know, and sometimes he pulls his leg off and scares people, but he, he does it for fun and says, see, it doesn't even bother me. And he said, I have to say that sometimes when he's over, I get kind of drawn into, you know, talking to him and I, I do feel better. And I said, well, that's really interesting. And he said, well, why would that be interesting? And I said, well, why do you think it would be interesting? And his answer after he stopped for a little while and thought about it, he said, I guess it's because I stopped thinking about myself and what's wrong with me. Now, he, I didn't tell him that. He told him that. And we're talking about the health that's already in people that they can access he relaxed while he was talking to me. Then he got to telling me about his friend that was funny and his mind went to that and he calmed down and he started feeling better. And then he had an insight and it was pretty easy to point out. You just had an insight. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, you came up with that idea that when you're not thinking about yourself, you feel better. And it's kind of a problem if you're home all the time thinking about yourself, you know, because you kind of can't feel better if that's how you use your mind. And, you know, now that, that doesn't sound like anything that anything that's true psychology, but it's really allowing people to see themselves as they truly are. That's what we're trying to do is to let people see that deep down inside when they're least expecting it and when their mind quiets down, they see themselves as okay. And with that, we have come to the end of our show. Oh my gosh, we did it again. We did it again. So, aloha. Yeah, see you next time. We hope you heard something new and that you will continue to join us to challenge the prevailing thinking about the possibilities for health in everyone. To subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at psychologyhasitbackwards.com 